When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and this week we are talking about Bioshock 2. So this is the follow-up episode to the full episode that was put out two weeks ago. I talked about the video game Bioshock, um, and today I'm going to be talking about the sequel, Bioshock 2. (laughs) Um, and and applying basically the same type of analysis that I did in the previous episode, where we're going to be looking at the you know plot of the game and some of the main characters and kind of what they represent, kind of the archetypes um, and messages they show us about ourselves and and that are related to psychology. And this one is really interesting because the main villain is a psychiatrist, so there are actually some interesting things that I am going to be talking about in regards to mental health professionals. Um, And although I am not in training to become a psychiatrist, because that requires medical school, um, psychiatrists are part of mental health, the mental health field, the mental health profession. Um, And so I think that this, this game has a has a lot to tell us about how our field can be perceived. (laughs) Um, So that being said, uh, let's go ahead and dive on in. So the plot of Bioshock 2 revolves around the main character, Subject Delta. So in this game, you play as Delta, who is um, one of the big daddies, as we discussed in the first episode. So one of the kind of mechanical, voiceless, featureless entities that that is tasked with protecting the little sisters. So you you get to play as a big daddy in this game. Um, So the plot opens up with Delta being forced to commit suicide in front of Sophia Lamb, who is our main villain, um, and her daughter Eleanor Lamb, who had been your little sister, or this this big daddy's little sister. the game immediately fast forwards 10 years and Subject Delta is resurrected through the Vita Chamber, which is the mechanic in the game that like respawns you when you die. Um, Delta is resurrected by little sisters who are controlled by Eleanor, who is now a teenager, um, and she is able to communicate with you telepathically and she tells you um, to please come rescue her from containment as Sophia Lamb, her mother, is planning to do some sort of utopian experiment on Eleanor, which will consist of turning her into the ultimate selfless human by injecting her with Adam, which is the substance that the little sisters collect. And and after injecting Eleanor with Adam, she will be tasked with absorbing all of the memories and personalities of the population of Rapture. So ultimately, the people who live in Rapture will cease to exist as individuals but will and will only exist with inside the collective consciousness of Eleanor. Young would have a field day with this, right? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the, they would be, like the consciousness 
consciousnesses of these people would be living in, in Eleanor, but they would be like collective, right? Just like the collective unconscious. Um, so as Subject Delta, you must battle through um, the city, battling against several high-profile members of the cult known as the Family, which is run by Sophia Lamb, while trying to save Eleanor, who, through memories revealed by Eleanor, we realize, you know, we are bonded. The main character is bonded to her. So that's the plot. Another wild one. <laughs> um, the So in the first Bioshock look we talked about, the main character, or the main villain, was like a representation of unchecked libertarianism. Um, and so the game developers have said that um, Bioshock 2 was supposed to be kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum, where instead of unchecked libertarianism, Sophia Lamb represents unchecked, what they call collectivism. So this idea that you have no individual needs and all you do should be for the good of the whole. I would say that this characterization is like a very Western view of collectivism. Um, so like collectivism being kind of the belief that the needs of the group or the needs of society do outweigh the needs of the individual. And there are many cultures, <laughs> many, many, many cultures that are collectivistic cultures um, where it is the norm to consider how your actions impact other people and impact the systems that you live in more so than considering how they impact you. I think the issue is, an issue that I have is like in Bioshock 1, right, the, the main villain is a libertarian and we don't have any great representations of like libertarianism working, whereas we do have many examples of collectivism working. Like there are many functioning societies and cultures that are collectivistic that function just as well. Um, and I think that the game developers maybe are conflating collectivism with like some other ideas of like high control groups or, um, I mean, cultism, right? Like cults. And so that is... That's what we're going to see play out in the game, right? Is basically watching one person try to take over and manipulate a large group of people into serving really the needs of the individual, right? So Sophia's lambs, Sophia Lambs's needs are what are being served by her utopia, because uh, you can you better believe she's not going to let her memory and consciousness be put into the big goop of Adam. She's going to live her own life. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm i going to now go through some of the, the major characters that we meet um, and kind of talk about, again, what they represent um, and some, you know, some psychological concepts we can pull from them. So, you know, of course, we start with our main character, Subject Delta. Um, so Delta actually was a diver who accidentally found Rapture. So remember, Rapture is like this underground city, um, and the man who was eventually turned into Delta was known as Johnny Topsider because he just kind of like accidentally found Rapture um, and because Ryan was, Andrew Ryan was so suspicious of him, uh, he was put in prison and unfortunately as we come to find out that the private prison, the for-profit prison, <laughs> was being run as um, basically a holding cell for um, subjects for experiments. So like pretty much all of the men who were incarcerated in Rapture get turned into big daddies. And so I think also something that's really interesting with Bioshock 2 is it dives a lot deeper into the lore, um, like kind of surrounding Rapture, and it, it fleshes out a lot of the ideas from the first game. 
Um, and this is one of those darker themes of like how incarceration works in a city where there's supposed to be no government. <laughs> um, and so like obviously the prisons are all, if there's going to be a prison in that type of city, they're going to be private. And if you have a private prison and you don't have a government, then there's no oversight about what happens to the people in that prison. Um, and in fact, the the prison, which is called Persephone, becomes sort of like the final battleground of the game um, because it's also where Sophia Lamb is kept after she's arrested for like fomenting insurrection um, but I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more but so that's that's how we get to Delta is he's he's an outsider he's not from Rapture and he's changed into this and of course he's referred to as Delta that's that term is said over and over again and it's to remind us that Delta is here to bring a change to the like status quo as it is under Sophia Lamb. So that's just, they threw that little in there thing. Um, so uh, after Delta was turned into a big daddy, he was paired with Eleanor. So throughout the game, Eleanor refers to him as father and he takes, he begins to take on this like masculine parent role. So in the context of like archetypes, what is the archetype of father that De Delta represents? Um, and I think that Delta represents this idea that like, like the idea of father, the identity of father is like a stoic, silent um, force. And I mean, Delta is literally silent because he's the main character. Like there's, there's no dialogue coming from him. Um, but, you know, we don't, there's no evidence of Delta reacting to anything. You know, he's sort of like this blank slate this, um, you know, ultimate strong force as he tears through the city to find Eleanor, you know, which is, for all intents and purposes, his daughter. Depending on the the way you play the game, so this game, the choices you make do have kind of a bigger impact on the ending. Um, and so you, you do, there is still the mechanic of if you choose to save or harvest the little sisters, there's also several characters that you have the choice to kill or not. Um, and based on those choices, you get different endings. Um, and at the end of the game, Eleanor Eleanor makes like a similar speech, no matter which type of ending. It's just, you know, it, it's just tweaked a little bit. But, but the assumption is that Eleanor is behaving in the way that she learned from her father. And so it also gives us this archetype of like, you know, kind of the father sets the tone and what the father does is what the children will do. Even though Eleanor has been raised by her mother for all of her life, you know, she she follows, the, she leads, or the father leads her example. So I, I think that's kind of the, the archetype we're getting out of Subject Delta. And I think it is a very, like, old-fashioned, you know, more like fundamentalist view of father. And, and to be clear, you know, the game is supposed to be taking place in the late 60s, so I think this is still kind of like a relevant archetype, like would, would mimic the way that people in the 60s might think about their father or the concept of father, but that that's kind of this role that Subject Delta is filling, and you as the, you know, the player are playing this role as father, um, and you see how your actions change how Eleanor interacts with the world um, because she will make decisions at the end of the game about how she will treat those who have wronged her and how she will kind of go out into the world. So that's that's Delta, that's what he's giving us. Another big character in this game is 
Augustus Sinclair. So he is one of the elites who helped to found Rapture, and he really fits into this like elite class that Ryan wanted to foster in Rapture, like, you know, just like an unabashed capitalist. In fact, Sinclair is the one who owns the private prison where both Delta and Lamb are held um, during their times. And so he is the one who orchestrates the use of incarcerated people for experimentation um, and like coordinates a lot of like very shady deals. But he becomes, in the second game, he becomes the character that is assisting you and like giving Delta direction on how to get to Eleanor. So he is almost this character of almost like he's trying to redeem himself because he's trying to assist you in getting to Eleanor and and kind of overthrowing Lamb and letting people be free again. But at the same time, like none of this stuff happens without Sinclair's influence and without his sort of like naked capitalism. Um, And then ultimately... Sinclair is also turned into a big daddy called Subject Omega, because he's the last one, um, that you have to battle. So you spend the whole game with Sinclair being a helper, um, only for you to, toward the end of the game, have to kill him. Um, and you don't get a choice in this one, because it's, 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 it's just a, it's just like a fight, a regular fight. So you don't, um, you don't get the option. It's interesting in this game, like, when they choose to have you make a decision that could influence the end of the game. Um, And so it it does kind of result in this kind of off-balanced feeling of, well, wait, I got to choose the last time. Why don't I get to choose this time? And I think it kind of contributes to... I think it works well in a horror game because it contributes to this, like... um, feeling of unease or being unsettled um that contributes to the like the spooky atmosphere and the like creepy stuff going on so it's unsettling but it is um a mechanic of the game so you know Sinclair we we only interact with him in the game through like um like basically phone calls so you don't see him as much um but I think he I think he serves the purpose of connecting us to the past game and just kind of again serving as that archetype of like um someone who is driven only by money um and kind of like what do you have kind of like that realization of like you have nothing left when you kind of burned all your relationships and burn all your bridges and you know and, and that's kind of symbolized in this like ultimate upsetting death or he's killed by the only person that was helping him move through the the hellscape that has become rapture so that's that's Sinclair. Next, we have a character called Grace Holloway, um, and she is a singer in Rapture who had moved to Rapture to escape from poverty on the surface, um, but ultimately is forced into poverty in Rapture after using her platform to speak out against some negative things happening in Rapture. Um, so she, like, because she's a singer, she would sing songs, that kind of had these messages about how Andrew Ryan and his, you know, crew were doing bad things and, like, not making Rapture a place where people could get the things that they were promised. Um, so she she kind of represents this, like, 
not a political prisoner because she's not taken prisoner, but she is sort of like she represents like the opposition ideology to Andrew Ryan, uh, but she is ultimately like punished for it and and can only survive by living in the in the part of Rapture called the Pauper's Drop, which is like duh, you know you're poor if you live there. It's literally named like poor people's hole. And I do think it is interesting that this this game highlights a lot more the rampant poverty that's going on in Rapture. And isn't it so interesting that there's so much poverty in a place that doesn't tax people? It's almost like we need taxes to uh, provide social safety nets so that we can eliminate poverty, but whatever. That's just my opinion. <laughs> um, part of Grace, Grace Holloway's story is that she begins seeking counseling from Sophia Lamb because Sophia Lamb offers free counseling in the poor parts of Rapture, um, which as you come to learn more about Lamb, you realize was very exploitative and was a way that she was able to gain more followers. Um, but from the perspective of Grace Holloway, it's like, you know, this is this is so needed. And as a woman who has lived through some very intense things that, you know, we could, we would probably call trauma, um, you know, having access to free counseling was a game changer for her. So she is one of the first people that kind of becomes, um, that buys all in with Sophia Lamb and becomes a part of the family, the cult. Um, and ultimately, Grace was taking care of Eleanor while Sophia Lamb was in prison, um, but... Eleanor was stolen and turned into a little sister while she was under Grace's care. So there's also this element of, like, feeling very guilty, which makes her more beholden to Lamb, and, you know, kind of, like, solidifies this idea that you you are less than, but, you know, the great Sophia Lamb will, will deign to, you know, be in your presence, or have you in her presence. And it's interesting because there's, um... I don't know if I talked about this as much in the first game, but there is like pretty explicit racial segregation within the design of the game. So like Grace Holloway is a black woman, lives in the poorest part of town and is caring for, you know, this little white girl. Um, and in fact, all of the little sisters are little white girls, like, which if you're familiar with the true crime <laughs> industry, you'll know that that like young, pretty white girls are considered to be the most dead, um, as in the most attention is paid to them when they go missing or when they are harmed. Um, whereas anyone who's not that, so like specifically women of color, particularly indigenous, indigenous women are you know, considered to be the least dead, as in, like, people don't care when they go missing or when they are dead. Um, and so it's just kind of interesting how the game is showing you this. Like, it is showing you this and, and showing you this racial segregation. And when you're in the poorer parts of the town, a lot of the character models are people of color versus when you're in, like, the richer areas. Um, but there isn't much, especially in, like, the main game, the main dialogue, that would hint at this dynamic. So it's something that you kind of have to be paying attention to, um, and I think that it is, like, implicit in the relationship that Grace Holloway has with Sophia Lamb, as in, like, Sophia Lamb is this, like, benevolent white woman who, you know, continues to forgive this, you know, poor woman of color who just keeps making mistakes or, you know, keeps, keeps ending up in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Um, and it is like, as you start to tease that out, that is like kind of gross. <laughs> um, and uh, it's unsettling. And again, I think this kind of contributes to the overall like off-putting feeling that you want to have in a horror game. Um, and, and hints at how like real world dynamics are part of horror, right? Like, like the way that we segregate or use racial identity against each other is horror and is something that should be pointed out and noticed. Um, so I think personally I would have liked to have seen a little bit more in the game to kind of point at this and use this this dynamic um, in a more fruitful way, um, but I do enjoy that it is in the game and that there is at least a little bit of an acknowledgement um, that this is a this is a dynamic. Um, so that that's great. So then at the end of this section where you're with Grace Holloway, you have the choice of to kill her or not to kill her, um, and this determines the type of ending that you will have. Now, when I play, like I mentioned before, I have a really hard time harvesting the little sisters, so I always end up saving them, um, and I have a hard time killing Grace, so I don't think I ever have <laughs> in the few times that I've replayed this game, just because, like, out of all of the, you know, main characters that you meet in this game she is one of the people that really was like very pure of heart pure of intention and um you know was probably the only person who's not like a like a full-on capitalist it's just trying to extort profit out of everything around them um like she's the closest thing to i guess like you would say a regular person in rapture so you always have a really hard time killing her um and if you don't kill her she like she helps you out a little bit at points of the game um, which I think is kind of cool that she, um, she kind of has like a, if you let her live, you kind of get to see that she has a moment where she realizes like, oh, maybe I'm in a cold and maybe it's not so great. So I like that you get to give her a chance at redemption. Um, so anyway, moving on, one of the next big characters that you see is Stanley Poole. Um, and so Stanley Poole was a... I guess you could say he was kind of like the equivalent of a paparazzo in Rapture, um, and he was sent into infiltrate Lamb's cult um, on behalf of actually Sinclair and Andrew Ryan. Um, and so he uh, goes in to the cult, gathers information, and ultimately exposes Sophia Lamb's plan to overthrow uh, Andrew Ryan and take control of Rapture herself. So, you know, She's not a good person. <laughs> she doesn't have great plans, um, but neither is Ryan. So maybe give someone else a chance for a minute. But ultimately, Stan Stanley Poole is portrayed as kind of like the ultimate villain who will sell out anyone, do anything. Um, he also um, steal is the one who steals Eleanor away from Grace and sells her to the orphanage so that she becomes a little sister. And you know, I think Stanley Poole is the character that really does embody this like last remnant of Andrew Ryan's ideals of like go to the most individualistic you can get go to the the highest level of greed that you can get in direct opposition to this cult that you are living in called the family that is becoming more and more collectivistic so you know and Poole never Poole never like learns a lesson you know like he doesn't he doesn't ever see that it was wrong that he stole a child to sell to an orphanage he like he has lost his sense of like moral morality um because of his greed um and so he's also another character where when you get to the end of his section you get to decide if you kill him or not um and i have to say i do usually kill him <laughs> although killing him gets you 
closer to the bad ending. It is just always so satisfying because he's so unrepentant. <laughs> um, and he's he's such a such a little piece of crap, honestly. <laughs> um, and at this point in the game, you've been... You're, you're so far into the game at this point and you've been on this mission of, like, get to Eleanor, get to Eleanor. She's been communicating with you throughout the game. But it is really hard to not feel like you're doing some sort of justice for her in in killing Stanley Poole. Um, and I will say I don't I don't believe that killing someone is justice, but in the game, they I think they do a pretty good job of like getting you to feel that sense of of like justice or completion or retribution um, when you get to Stanley Pools. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to highlight him because I I do think it is an interesting part of the story, and he because a lot of your the characters that you encounter are like fully bought into Sophia Lamb's ideology it is interesting that there remains this one main character who is in the opposite um camp uh, you know aside from Sinclair but but he's uh you know still is representing this kind of naked individualism and, and capitalism um okay so then the next big character that you'll meet is Gil Alexander um and so he I think is a really good bridge over of the theme in the first game about the detriment of science without limits. So Gil Alexander is actually the one behind the like Big Daddy Little Sister program and he's the one who um, comes up with the idea that they'll pair bond a Big Daddy and a Little Sister to keep the Big Daddy on his toes to protect the Little Sister. So Again, this idea of like when we doing scientific experiments, if we don't have regard for life or regard for the dignity of subjects, then we will make big mistakes. Um, and there are some like little audio bits and pieces where it, when you're playing through the game where you kind of come to realize that Gil Alexander is like not super happy about the choices that he made um, and some of the projects that he contributed to while he was in Rapture. And so... That's how he kind of becomes um, vulnerable to Sophia Lamb's ideology. And ultimately, he becomes a victim of like the ultimate experimentation because he is the first person that Lamb tries to turn into the utopia. So she uses um, she uses actually the conditioning techniques that we talked about last time in the first episode with um, Jack Ryan, right? The would you kindly? So Lamb uses those types of like brainwashing techniques on Gil Alexander and then injects him with like a ton, ton of Adam. Um, but because he's not like a blank slate or he's not the perfect host, um, the Adam just kind of like corrupts him and he turns into this like really gross big pile of goo <laughs> and like goes crazy. Um, so you know, here with this character, with this kind of, you know, continued archetype of like, I guess you could say like the mad scientist, there is sort of like a cosmic balancing of you did these experiments on people without regard for their life or safety, um, and so therefore you become a victim of a, an experiment that had no regard for your life or safety. And as you finish this section of the game, you get to choose if you're going to kill Alexander or save him. And this one, um, I think is unfair <laughs> in terms of the outcomes you get. So, cause, um, you know, when he's gross and turned into the monster in the tube full of Adam 
and he's gone crazy. He's like, don't kill me, don't kill me. But throughout the, the, that level, there are all these audio recordings left by him before he went insane, where he's like, please kill me. Like, I know I'm going insane, and I know this isn't right. So you may think that killing him will get you the good ending because you're doing it out of mercy, but the reality is, is that the game still counts it as killing, and so that contributes to a, a bad ending. Um, but just like with Stanley Pool, I usually do choose to kill Gil just because it's like, who would want to live as a giant glob of DNA goop <laughs> in a tube? Not me. So I, <laughs> that's the choice that I always make. Um, so those, so between Gil, Stanley, and Grace Holloway, those are the three major, like, characters you have to move through to reach the end of the game. There are some other minor main characters that you encounter as well, but I don't know how important they are, but I think that these three kind of represent the three types of people that are so vulnerable to a cult. So, like, with Grace Holloway, like, we have a woman in poverty with, like, multiple traumas, um who gets sucked in through the offering of, like, free help. Um, Then you have Stanley Poole, who basically victimizes himself because of how greedy and individualistic he is. And then Gil Alexander, who becomes sucked in. He also becomes vulnerable because of guilt, guilt of what he's done. Um, And so I think that those three are, are very interesting because they highlight kind of the different types of vulnerability Um, that people can have, and it doesn't really matter what your social standing or income level is, because all three of these characters kind of, you know, run the spectrum in regards to, you know, social economic status. It doesn't matter if you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable, and you can be pulled into a cult, because again, Sophia Lamb is running a cult, and she is uniquely positioned to exploit all of these vulnerabilities. Um, so with that being said, I think it is time to talk about Sophia Lamb. So Miss Lamb, I'm sorry, Dr. Lamb, <laughs> um, is a psychiatrist who was originally brought to Rapture when Andrew Ryan realized that free markets can't cure mental illnesses. Um, so she's considered in Bioshock 2 to be part of like the original elites that came to Rapture, even though... I don't think in Bioshock 1 there's like any mention of her, um, but they kind of they kind of work into the lore of Bioshock 2 why you don't see any mention of her in the first game, and it's because she's in prison during the events of the first game. Um, but yeah, so she's brought down, um, she offers counseling to the people of Rapture, and as she's offering counseling, she starts to realize, well, I don't think the way Andrew Ryan is running Rapture is working. I think I have a better idea of running um, an underground city or an underwater city, and the way that I would do it would result in a utopia. So she kind of starts to organize her patients. Um, so she's she's working with them, providing them counseling, and I'm assuming medication because she's a psychiatrist. Um, although she is a psychiatrist in the 60s, and they, they did a lot more counseling back then than they did medication. Like, our, our modern understanding of psychiatry is, like, mostly geared toward medication, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Either way, she's providing mental health services to people and then also organizing them into, like, a revolution. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go ahead and call that a dual relationship. <laughs> so a dual relationship with in the mental health field is when you have 
more than one type of relationship with someone. So for example, if I was seeing you as a client, you, you and I have a therapist-client relationship, um, but then we also start a business together, we now have a business partner relationship. So that's two relationships. That's a, a big no-no. <laughs> a big, big no-no. It, it's in our ethics codes um, to not do that, especially when one of your relationships is therapist-client because or psychiatrist client, because as the mental health professional, you have a lot of control over the other person, right? If I'm someone's therapist, I know a lot of their secrets. I know a lot of about their behaviors. I know what's going to make them tick. Uh, I know how to take advantage of them. And so, and, and they don't know anything about me in the same way, right? Like if I was just your friend, we would have reciprocity in how much we share. But when I'm your therapist, I don't share my stuff with you because that's not how therapy works, right? It's it's the space for the client to, to use. So having dual relationships, you automatically assure that the relationships will never be fully equal because you will always have this one relationship where the therapist has more power than the patient. And, you know, there are also considerations for dual relationships in other ways. Like, you know, if you're somebody's teacher or you're somebody's supervisor, you might not also be socializing with them, especially while you're in a place where you're evaluating them because you have more power. So that's just, I just thought that was interesting. Um, and I don't know if the the developers intended it to be a dual relationship, but that's how I saw it. And I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of explain like why dual relationships with your therapist are not a good idea. And that's why you probably shouldn't add your therapist on social media. And if they are accepting you on social media, that's probably not a good idea. So just just a heads up that that's a red flag. Um, so anyway, she <laughs> Sophia Lamb enters into, these, into this position where she's starting to organize her patients to take over Rapture. Um, her plan is revealed by Stanley Poole, as I mentioned earlier, and so she's put in prison um, during kind of the events leading up to the first game. So that's why we don't see her, because she's in, incarcerated. After she's after Andrew Ryan is killed, Sophia Lamb kind of gets out, and no one really cares anymore. <laughs> um, and so she has the freedom to, to finally finalize the organization of all of her patients into a cult called The Family. Um, and over the course of Bioshock 2, we come to realize that basically everybody left alive in Rapture is part of the family. Um, that's like she's she's taken over control. Um, so something that I thought was that really stood out to me kind of immediately about the character Sophia Lamb is that she plays into this role of the psychiatrist as um, trying to control your behavior um, and sort of this inherent fear that if you let someone into your mind, it means that they're going to have control over you. Um, and I think this this archetype or this trope was a really more popular back in the time that this game would have been made, right? In like the 60s, 70s. Um, and I think part of that is due to just like kind of the wacky nature that psychiatry was in at the time. Because like we were just finally getting a handle on psychotropic medication. Um, but it was still really, <laughs> really gnarly. Um, and also you're starting to have you know, things like MK Ultra happening and stories of, uh, like I talked about in the last episode, like Milgram and Zimbardo doing these like crazy experiments. Um, so there's this idea that 
psychiatrists or I think psychologists in general are trying to get into your brain and trying to take over control of you. Um, and I think this really nicely kind of ties into that brainwashing fear we talked about in the first game, right, with the would you kindly phrase um, that's used to condition the main character of the first game. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not true that psychologists or psychiatrists want to control your behavior, to control your mind, and, you know, ultimately have control over you. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who are very bad people who get into this field that that do want to do that but on a whole the the industry not the industry <laughs> the profession is not geared toward that and in fact um, at least in the way that I have been trained mental health professionals want you to have want you to have more control over you and want to help you establish ways of understanding how you behave and how you react to things so that you you can feel more in control. Um, and so this actually what is related to a trope on TV tropes, which I, I'll, I'll provide the link with the page, um, on my sources page, um, but it's the trope of psychopsychologists. And so um, there's kind of a range of the psychopsychologists. So like the best, <laughs> the best level you're going to get is just kind of um, a therapist who doesn't really care about their patients, grows really um, frustrated or gives really self-destructive advice um, and at worst you have really sinister or abusive relationships with patients um, as, such as making patients participate in evil schemes and so I think we see Sophia Lamb kind of at the, the extreme end of this trope as you know having an ulterior motive. Now her ulterior motive for utopia does not on its surface seem inherently evil until we learn more about it in that although she says the right things and throughout the game she says it's because she doesn't want there to be pain she doesn't want there to be suffering and that she has come to believe that pain and suffering will go away when everyone lives in the ultimate collective utopia um, what she's really saying is she's tired of everyone being gross and nasty and she just wants everyone to be nice and pretty and the best way to do that is for you to shut up and live in a brain of someone else. <laughs> um, and that she ultimately then gets to have control over the utopia because she's outside of it. Um, and so I think that really does fall into this trope well. And you know, there is a part of me that when I see tropes or archetypes of, of psychiatrists and psychologists as like being very messy or being very bad, you know, being criminals, there's a part of me that reacts very strongly and is very protective of the profession that I'm in, right? And is like, well, we're not like that. And I hope that, you know, people don't walk away from media thinking that we're all like that. Um, but there is another, another part of me that does, that does understand, right? And there is... I think especially for people who have never gone to therapy or specifically like never taken psychotropic medications, there is this fear of like, what is it going to be like? Um, and so I think the psychopsychologist kind of does breed out of that uncertainty and that unknowingness um, of, quite frankly, as a client, having to put yourself in a very vulnerable situation of kind of, you know, completely exposing yourself to someone who is not going to reciprocate and is going to remain distant from you. So I understand where it comes from, but I do hope that we start to see a lot more media representations of therapists as like good people that want to help um, to kind of balance out some of these bad things because all these are fun stories to tell 
um, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I don't want our culture to like imbue this idea of, of mental health professionals as inherently evil. Um, but that's just my two little cents about that. There's also one more piece of Sophia Lamb's character that is important, and, I, and I'll go into it more as I continue discussing the game, but she is portrayed as kind of the strict, cold, domineering mother. You know, like she's, uh, you, you kind of come to see that even though she is the leader of this cult called the family, you know, she's kind of like the mother figure to the cult. The way that she behaves toward Eleanor, her own child, is that she is very strict. She has very high standards for her daughter, and so um, it does, does not engage in a lot of warmth with her daughter and is kind of always pushing and prodding and, and you know, making clear to Eleanor that there's a path laid out for her you know, Eleanor is required to take. And um, I do think it is so interesting that, that that this is kind of the foil to Subject Delta's father figure, is Sophia Lamb's mother figure is, although both are, well, like, she's not silent, right? Like, so Delta is silent. Sophia Lamb talks the whole game. Um, Delta is, well, he is, I guess we would say, devoid of emotion. And Sophia Lamb is also devoid of emotion, but in a different way. Um, wherein that she expresses so much care and affection for her her family, her patients, but doesn't show the same to Eleanor. Um, and as you move through the game, and it becomes clear that Eleanor is not going to give up on her pursuit of reuniting with Delta, Sophia becomes even more and more enraged toward Eleanor. So I think this, again, there's like, like Sophia Lamb herself, I encompasses a lot of these tropes and these archetypes like for one you know we the psychopsychologist she also embodies this like the the cold mother like the unforgiving mother and we'll we'll see how this plays out more as i as i i wrap up here but um, i did just want to point out that you know at least with delta we get to see that your actions throughout the game right change the way that eleanor sees you as as a father figure but no matter what you do throughout the game, Sophia Lamb is always a strict, cold, and domineering mother. And I don't know if that is just to offset her role as, like, a mental health person, right? To, like, kind of contrast that she gives so much care to other people, but she can't give to her own child, or if it's supposed to represent her, like, dogged commitment to her ideals, that she's so invested in this idea that Eleanor will be the utopia, um, that she doesn't have any space to be a mother, which it's like, okay, so she can't have a job and <laughs> be a mother. I know I'm pushing that a little bit far, but it just, um, I, I think it just does add more to like what the understanding we have of the character of Sophia Lamb. So anyway, moving along, the last main character that I'm going to discuss is, is Eleanor, again, um, refers to you as father and is Sophia Lamb's daughter. So Eleanor, interestingly enough, um, one of the first things I thought of when I was playing this game was the Electra Complex, which, um, if you're familiar with the Oedipus Complex, which is Freud's idea that as boys, as little boys move through the psychosexual stages of development, they become to hate their father because they are sexually obsessed with their mothers, and just like in the Greek myth of Oedipus, they want to kill their father so that they can be with their mothers. Um, so Freud himself actually didn't really have a term for this in for girls going through psychosexual development, but his student Carl Jung, who we've talked about before, um, 
was the one who came up with the term Electra complex because in Greek mythology, Electra helps to kill her mother um, to avenge her father. So it's it's sort of like I hate like hating the mother to, because you're sexually obsessed with the father. It's not a really one-to-one. The myth of Electra is like really confusing, uh, in my opinion, which makes sense why Young was drawn to it because that man is endlessly confusing. That that's kind of was set up as like the antithesis to the Oedipus complex. So I wanted to look up more information about this, and I found this very interesting article by Kahn and Hyder in the uh, Journal of Language, Literature, and Humanities. That did like a pretty good breakdown of how where you'll see electric complex in pieces of literature and poetry because interestingly enough um you're not going to find many therapists and many even many psychoanalysts who endorse the electric complex um it's kind of a fringe theory um but it shows up a lot more in literature so that's that's why this article came from like a literature journal um but so they outlined Young's theory of the electric complex as like a young girl who when you're very young loving your mother um, and then as you start to grow up beginning to hate your mother because of how physically similar you are to her Um, and then as you grow to hate and like realize that you are growing into your mother um, you begin to view your mother as competition for attention from your father so that's where it kind of ties in the Oedipus complex of like being jealous that you have to compete for attention with the same sex parent as yourself. Um, So why is the electric complex very problematic and why should you never use it? (laughs) Um, So for one, the electric complex is part of this uh, larger umbrella of the term penis envy, which if you've ever heard anything about Freud, you'll have heard about penis envy. And penis envy is the idea that um, women get so enraged at the fact that they don't have male genitalia, that they don't have penises, um, that they will, like, act out behaviorally and, like, in mental health ways. Um, so that idea itself assumes a lot. And electric complex is part of this because it's this assumption of, like, you, you want to, you, you hate the mother because the mother is like you, i.e. you don't have, you both don't have a penis, and you're upset because then mother is competition for attention from the one who has a penis. And again, very, it's, it's, it's very essentialist, gender essentialist, right, of like genitalia equals gender, and we, we have discussed this multiple times on this podcast, and I will continue to discuss this, that is not the, the definition. So that's one of the reasons why uh, this is not great because it, it does kind of continue to perpetuate this idea that genitals determine gender. Um, and it also perpetuates the idea that the male sex organ or the penis is the best type of sex organ, right? Like like penis envy, electric complex. It's like, I'm so enraged. I'm so upset that I have this absence of a penis, that I'll do anything to get at it or get attention from someone with a penis, um, which is absurd. There is no, like, which genital is best or worse. There, I would say they're equal. <laughs> equal in, in quality. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, this does kind of, the electric complex kind of harkens back to this idea of, like, um, this, this old school understanding we had of gender and, and the development. Um, and if you're familiar at all with Freud and the, you know, this concept of, like, psychosexual development, um, you'll know that the genitals really aren't that important. 
<laughs> and growing up, and that we like we really don't use that as a measure of development anymore. Um, but I did think it was interesting that this article talked about how like you're pretty much only going to see this in literature, and here we do see it in a, in a piece of media, in um in in this video game, and so and and this really the electric complex plays into which ending the endings that you get. So if you get the good endings. Um, so, like, if you save the little sisters and you don't kill any of the, the three main characters, um, at the end of the game, you will see Eleanor save her mother. So Eleanor saves uh, Sophia by giving her oxygen when she is in, like, a drowned submarine. Um, she will inject the memories of Subject Delta. Like, she'll so suck them up and make them a part of herself, and she kind of, like dedicates herself to making the world a better place. So that's like the 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 good ending track. Um and and that's where you kind of see the electric complex be resolved, right? And that she doesn't kill her mother. She like she she doesn't have to kill her mother to receive attention from her father. She allow she, she's able to allow her mother to live. The bad ending see that Eleanor leaves her mother to die. I'm not remembering quite correctly exactly what happens, but basically like doesn't allow Delta's memories to be injected and kind of is like, I'm going to go take revenge on all of humanity because of my life. Um, so that would be where the Electric Complex won out in that she does kill her mother um, and is ultimately so upset that she, she didn't receive the attention from her father. Um, so, you know, it just it's an interesting context or an interesting concept to think of in terms of like literature and media portrayal um but i'm gonna just one more time reiterate that not something you're gonna find a therapist talking about um or not something that you need to be worried about and like in your own psychology um and so you know one of the ultimate parts of the game is that toward the end of the game eleanor transforms into a big sister and so big sisters are the response to big daddies and little sisters. So in the game we learn that when little sisters go through puberty and aren't able to harvest Adam anymore, they, um, well at first were just considered useless, but then of course the scientists found a use for them um, and they're transformed into big sisters who are more agile and more aggressive than the big daddies. So they were kind of um, used as extra protection for the little sisters. Um, and Unfortunately, the big sisters wear very fitted suits. Um, so, like, the big daddies are in, like, big old-school diver suits, but the big sisters are in, like, I guess what you would call a wetsuit. Uh, but it's, like, metal. And it's like, okay, yeah, the other ladies, so they have to show off their body. But I think it would be interesting if the... It would be more interesting if the big sisters had, like, clunky outfits or if they had just like a different style of outfit that didn't necessarily like show off a body shape as much um but you know the game is very old so <laughs> there's no one's going to be taking my input on this um but i did think that the you know that throughout the game you are pursued by big sisters they're much harder to fight off um than the big daddies or any other enemies and um, they're more advanced than the big daddies, and so you do like encounter these these characters throughout the game, and then at the end of the game, Eleanor makes the decision to transform into a big sister so that she can help you escape. Um, and so she kind of 
um, throughout the game has taken on this role of like feeling that she's in because she's still connected to the little sisters because she was one um, and she does have this like psychic connection with them and so I, I see her transformation as a little a bit into a big sister at the end as kind of like part of her penance for um, escaping little sisterhood while the rest did not um, and again if you get a good ending she like saves a bunch of the little sisters and you um, that's another thing that she she learns from Subject Delta how to treat the little sisters. So if you just harvest them, she harvests them. But if you save them, then she saves them at the end. So again, another way where you you as the father are modeling behavior. But yeah, so Eleanor makes the decision to to become one of these creatures at the end. I don't know. I think it's a really it's kind of a fitting ending. I think for the game of like there, even though you, there is a possibility to get a good ending, there really is no good ending to this game. Like at the end of the day, um, it's a horror game, right? And it's it's like a dystopian past because <laughs> it takes place in the '60s. But it's it's it is a story that doesn't have a happy ending. Um, and so I think it is fitting that even at the end, you know, we see Eleanor kind of irreversibly change herself to be able to get out of Rapture, to get out of the city and to escape her her fate. But yeah, so taken all together, like again, I think a lot of really interesting archetypes in this one. Um, you know, kind of they are trying to serve as as a foil to the first game and, and that's what I think is so and this this makes such a great sequel is it does reference back to the first game so much and it does um, not just reference back but then present well what if this happened what if this thing from the first game happened but it's the opposite <laughs> um, and I really like that I think the the, the works really complement each other really well and and they're both they're both really strong games um, and I, I have always been drawn to Bioshock 2 because of Sophia Lamb's character um, I, she really is a, is a great villain um, and it's it's I think I think it's a great story, um, and I and it the game does a lot with the the archetype of mother in this game, and I I really I like it. I think it's a it's a cool exploration of that theme. Um, so anyway, thank you again for sticking with me to the end of another <laughs> video game episode. Um, next week will be another mini sode, and then we will start gearing up for. October, which will hopefully be full of plenty of spooky episodes to fit the month. Um, but thank you for listening and catch you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.